Hi and welcome back. Before I jump into the narrative, I'd like to express a deep gratitude for anyone who has followed the story so far. Um, this piece of writing is so important to me. I've worked on it for a long time and I'm really excited to be sharing it. So I feel a lot of love and support in making it. So thank you to everyone that's listened. Aside from that, I want to announce that this episode that I'm putting out right now um, is the penultimate episode and that the following episode will be the series finale. So that's two more episodes, this one and the next one. And the series finale is going to be really long, so I'm pretty excited to be sharing it with you guys. Um, I've always planned on this entirety of a series being really short, being one season. I mostly wanted to do this because I have a ton of writing and a ton of interviews and stuff pieced together. And I really would love it to be published as a novel, as a book, a memoir, or what have you. So this um, podcast was kind of like a dip into the story. Um, there's so much more to say about everything that happens after the end of this podcast. Um, and I just really hope that someone out there um, picks up more interest about um, this narrative that I'm excited to be sharing. You are listening to episode 6 of Good Criminal, a narrative based on two friends trying to get one off heroin. I've had a lot of people say varying things about who they think Felicity is in the story. Some call her the hero, others the victim, and some have called her the villain. I've had someone ask me who the good criminal in the story really is. In the end, that's up to the listener to decide. All I know is that neither of us were in the right in trying to do this ourselves. In breaking the law, in risking her life and my sanity out of fear of the unknown consequences. Without serious consideration for professional help, for rehab and therapy, we thought we could handle it all on our own. The truth is she would have lost her job, her school standing. She wouldn't have been arrested or fined, or rejected by her friends and family. I believe multiple angles of the same picture can shed perspective and shift an entire set of beliefs about something. This same story told from outside perspectives can help piece together a complete understanding of what happened. For example, when I talk to my family about this time, they are constantly telling me things I'd forgotten about. Like when I called my mom crying from a chicken restaurant, or when I told my sisters in the car that I was so pissed at her, and that I was so dumb. I don't remember saying these things, but I must have. So to share an alternative point of view, I've asked my sisters to write down what they remember from those days. This is what my younger sister has to say. I had a summer field zoology course that month. Four mornings a week, I would put on boots and bug spray and go tromping in the woods with 20 classmates and my professor, who was this magical combination of hippie and hunter. When Peggy told me her friend was spending the week at our house to detox, my first instinct was worry, for both Felicity and for Peggy. Movies made that kind of thing seem really hard. Now I'm embarrassed to say that I was a little excited to help, to play a part in the whole thing. So I was kind of disappointed when Peggy said it would be better if I stayed with our sister and her boyfriend for the week so that Felicity could be more comfortable and I could keep going to class without us disturbing each other. That week crawled by as I joked with fellow biology majors, getting rain boots stuck in mud and holding a snake we found. I knew that right then my sister and her best friend were going through one of the hardest things they would ever do. 
When I got back to our sister's house, we'd watch gaming channels on YouTube and pretend everything was fine. We got most of our updates from forwarded texts from mom. I prayed every night for the two of them, for their strength and safety. On my day off, Rachel got a call. She was laughing before she picked up the phone. And although I couldn't hear what Peggy was saying on the other line, it was like the air was sucked out of the room just from Rachel's face. When she hung up, she said, Peggy and Felicity are in a tow truck coming back from Carlisle. Carlisle? They were supposed to be safely eating ice cream right down the road. While my worries spiked, I was confused. And then the rest sunk in. A tow truck? Did they get into an accident? Were they on the highway when it happened? Are the police involved? At this point, I knew as much as Rachel, which was that they were in a tow truck and Peggy would text when they were 10 minutes out. We drove in terrified silence to the garage. Sitting in the parking lot, we watched the tow truck pull in, carrying that crumpled little car. That white sedan was in our family for years. It had been passed around from mom and dad to our brother to us. I took a second between the truck arriving and Peggy getting out of the cab to mourn that car, which I was sure was totaled. I forgot about my worry for the car the second I saw them, all red-eyed and exhausted. I was just relieved they were both alive and not in cuffs. Peggy came over to us first. Standing silently in front of the passenger side window, we watched Felicity search through the car for a minute. When I finally asked what happened, she shook her head, not answering. Instead, she called, not too kindly, for Felicity to come on. The ride back to our house was quiet. I think Felicity was trying to talk casually, but I might be remembering this wrong. All I knew was that Peggy was pissed. As soon as we parked, they both got out. Felicity went into the house, and Peggy hovered by the driver's side window. When Felicity was out of earshot, we both at almost the same time said, what happened and are you okay? Peggy's face crumpled immediately and between the few sobs she would allow herself, all she said was, I was so stupid and I'm just so tired. Eventually we extracted a few small details, but we wouldn't get the whole picture until later. With shaking hands and a deep breath, she left us saying, I need to go back in there. I can't leave her alone. We knew things were bad. Logically, I knew that. But I'd never seen Peggy so broken before. And I was so scared she might sink back into bad habits when this was over. So as soon as Rachel and I got back to the house, I called Seneca Behavioral Health. I knew Peggy stopped seeing Timmy, her long-term therapist. And I knew there was a long waiting list to get back on as a patient. But I was prepared to get her a session. Hi, I'd like to make an appointment for Peggy, I told the receptionist who answered the phone. Peggy used to be a patient here, she told me. Yes, I'd like to make an appointment for her. I wasn't going to budge. But she is a former patient, the woman pressed. I thought about it and said, I'd like to speak with Timmy, please. I knew that if I could just get a hold of him, things would work out. I can't guarantee he'll answer, since Peggy is no longer a patient. 
I'll leave a message, I told her. And I did. I wasn't sure how much I could say over the phone, but I let him know vaguely what was going on. He called me back within five minutes. Is Peggy okay? Was how I was greeted. I paused, thinking, and then said, she's not going to be. All right, so that was my younger sister sharing her piece of the story. And now we will have my older sister sharing her narrative. Peggy moved into my house for a while in 2014. Sometime in the next year, she told me and my boyfriend about her new friend, Felicity, from school. I watched Peggy form a kind of sisterhood with this new person. So, when she asked us if we would be interested in meeting her, we were excited to finally put a face to the name. When she came over to our apartment, in walks this hippie girl with beautiful red curly hair that went to her waist and a smile that reached her eyes. As she walked in, I remember her not being shy at all, immediately giving me a hug and telling me how cool it was of us to have her over for the weekend and that she brought booze. It's not often that you meet a person for the first time and feel as though you were greeting an old friend, but that was just who Felicity was. She felt like a breeze coming through a window on a warm day. She was easy to laugh and quick to give. She became a constant guest in our house, making cookies, smoking cigarettes with us, drinking and sleeping on our couch. Even when Peggy moved out of our house, she would still bring Felicity over to hang out. She was just the type of person you would trust immediately. In 2018, I got a call from Peggy. She was outside of my house and wanted to talk about something important. Her voice was reluctant and scared. It immediately put a pit into my stomach. I came outside and sat next to her on my front steps. Peggy didn't say anything for a long time, finishing her cigarette and then lighting another. I waited, nervous and impatient, to find out what happened and help. Finally, she looked at me with eyes that hadn't slept. Felicity is addicted to heroin and needs my help. She sighed, like telling me might have taken a little off of her shoulders. She told me about how she found out and how scared she was for Felicity. I remember just letting her talk because I had no idea how to respond. This was the last thing that I had expected. I promised her that I wouldn't tell anyone, but with a caveat. If I thought Felicity's life or Peggy's life was in danger, I would call the cops in an instant. Peggy scoffed and said that her life wasn't in danger in any way. I told her about how doctors are not allowed to report people who are addicted and seeking help. Eventually, Peggy did leave for her house, telling me that she was going to do some research on how to help. I never considered the help she was talking about was going to be a one-woman rehab. She called me the next morning, resolved to house Felicity, while they brought her through the worst of the withdrawal. I felt cold. I told her this was a terrible idea. People die from this. People hurt those they love to get a fix. People run away in the middle of this and get themselves in a bad position in order just to get away from the immense pain that it brings. It is not a flu or a hangover. It's a life and death situation that not only lasts a night, but a couple of days, maybe weeks. I remember begging her not to do this. She told me that she read a lot online and that she was very sure she could. She had a plan. She had medicine and fluids. She had research. All she needed was for me to let our other sister stay with me while Felicity was at their place. I naturally agreed, but again said that this is not okay. 
I stressed this so much that I remember Peggy hanging up on me after yelling that I don't trust her judgment and that I was treating her like a child, that I don't know any more than her, and that she was more informed. When she called back a couple of hours later, she apologized about yelling and hanging up. She was just really tired and spent all last night figuring this plan out. She told me she got Felicity to agree and that if this gets really bad, that she will go to a hospital. This made me feel better and I hesitantly agreed and offered the help I could. Mary moved in with me for a week. The first night, we got a call from Peggy, who sounded like someone who was having a sleepover with her best friend, only maybe a little more nervous and a little more tired. She told us how resolved Felicity was and how this was really, really going to work. It was already something like 12 hours since she used. I foolishly felt a little relieved. Maybe this could work after all. But then, right before she got off the phone, she did tell us that Felicity added something to the recovery process. It was something called soft. Even though she told me not to worry, and that they had this all under control, I heard the first glimpse of doubt in her voice. We didn't really hear anything big except little texts here and there about how sick Felicity was getting. It did not take long for Peggy to start sounding panicked in her phone calls. She would call and whisper, whisper to not wake up Felicity, or to bother her in her misery. She could never talk long. It was always short calls for air. I think just to let us know that she was okay. At the same time, to let us know that she was not okay. It was on night three that I told her that she needed to call the hospital after she called me crying, exhausted, and whispering nonsense. Not even a full story, just sobs and bits and pieces of what she was living. I heard that there was an incident with a bottle of pills and that she was scared. She was so scared. She eventually calmed down and was taking regular breaths. In a lingering silence, I can still hear her clearly asking me, what do I do if she dies? I told her to call the hospital. I threatened to call the police. She got more upset, telling me not to, that she could get in trouble, that it could ruin so much. She said that she was just tired and she shouldn't have just said that. They were on day three and they had to be over the hill by now. She just needed sleep. I offered to come over and take a shift so that she can get some rest. But I think my threat of telling the police took away any chance of her accepting that offer. She said it was okay. She could do this. It was a sad echo of her confident declaration of assuredness when this had all started. The text I got the next morning told me things were okay, that she will let me know if she needs anything. The call I got a couple hours later told me that they got into an accident, getting drugs, and that Felicity had totaled her car. They needed a ride home. I did not want to make things worse, so instead of yelling or scolding, I drove to the car shop. When I saw the crumpled vehicle, I was so mad, I just walked back to my car and got in. I don't remember even saying anything back when Felicity said hi quietly to me and got into the back seat. Peggy was silent on the way back to her house. When we got there, Felicity got out quickly and went inside. Peggy stayed in the car for a little while. All anger disappeared as I watched Peggy close her eyes and rest her head back on the seat. I could tell that she was at her limit. She didn't need me to tell her that this wasn't okay. She lived it. She knows more than I do at this point. I told her it was going to be all right, but she asked me, how? It's already not. 
and then Felicity came out and asked us through the car window where the cigarettes were. Peggy sighed and started to get out. She told us that she would call the parents about the car and figure it out. She would talk to us later. I want to say a big thank you to both of my sisters for being on the show and for sharing their part in this story. I am so grateful to have sisters like them who can come in when it feels like the world is falling apart. So anyway, after they dropped me off, I went back into the house. As soon as I walked in through the front door, she turned to me. She felt like a stranger to me, distant and unfamiliar. I felt on guard, like I didn't want to be near her. Looking back, it makes me so sad to reminisce about these final moments together. She said she had lost her soft in the crash and she wanted to go back to Carlisle with her boyfriend's car and get more. She just needed $40. Frustration detonated into desperation. No takes up so much room in a home. And I was so fucking tired. She kept saying, please, please, with these, with these, Tears streaming down her red face. She said she'd take all the morphine she had in her bag if she couldn't get a hold of some soft. This to her was the only option. This was the only way she saw herself getting clean, was doing more and more soft. I knew she was on a script for morphine, but I was surprised to hear her bring it up, immediately seeing the danger in it being around and at her disposal. I demanded that she give it to me. She said she would for $40. She stood on the other side of the room from me, and with the window shades down, the room exerted a dim, toxic energy as desperation sunk heavy into both of us. It was like she was a different person, and suddenly I had this warped reality in my house, and I felt like I could barely keep my eyes open. I kept saying no, that it was over, that we were going to sit down and watch some TV, and she would get through the last day and everything would be fine. She asked if I wouldn't buy her soft, would I buy her some Subutex? She knew a guy selling a couple pills she could take that would help. She reminded me they give those out in rehabs for people getting off heroin. All she needed was another $40 and she could go pick them up and come back. I knew about subs from her saying about them before. She told me they were an opioid prescribed in rehabilitation facilities to treat the worst of withdrawal but that she used to abuse them so they were no good for her anyway. I told her I wouldn't buy her any more drugs, and I've never seen someone so despondent, so utterly lost. It was an unreality saying no over and over, aching to reject her pleas, myself begging for her to stop asking. Finally, I told her I'd give her the cash under two conditions. One, she gave me the rest of the morphine. Two, she could only come back into this house if she showed me the two little white pills in the palm of her hand. If she came back with soft, heroin, fetty, perks, or anything else, I wouldn't help her anymore. As soon as I gave her the 40, she gave me the morphine. She was mumbling semi-unintelligibly about no one ever caring about her not having anyone to turn to, how she was completely alone. I hated her saying it, each feeling like an accusation of failure, of rejection of my help, and an inability to see how much I loved her and wanted her to get better. 
She wouldn't look at me once she had the money, and she was quickly out the door. It felt like a hollow goodbye, and I started begging her not to go. I followed her out onto the porch, pleading with her to stay and get clean, but she got into her boyfriend's large SUV that he had left the other day, and I watched with dreamlike dread as she swerved away. I knew she was going to get heroin, and I knew she would lie about it. I felt sick with the realization that I couldn't welcome her back into my home. That this is when I have to give up on trying to help her. I realized I couldn't, even if she came back. I felt so entirely far from myself, looking guilty as an enabler, helping her get drugs to get high, to not get sick or try to die. It felt like she wasn't just giving up on getting clean. She was giving up on surviving it. I went back inside, going straight to the bathroom to flush all the little blue morphine pills down the toilet. Then I sent her a text telling her I would help her pay for rehab. I would drive her myself, but that she couldn't come back to my house. That this was all over my head and that she needed professional help. Once I hit send, I stood in front of my closed front door, just staring at the faded purple paint. In waves of dissociation, I, I tuned out the thoughts crashing into each other until I could barely hear them. I don't know how long I stood there, but I don't think I moved until I picked my phone up and called my mom. When she answered the phone, I heard her voice, familiar and comforting. And I was so forcefully grounded, I fell to the floor, sobbing. To end these episodes, I gathered some resources that offer real, free, immediate help. They will help you find a bed and available free treatment options. If you or a loved one needs a referral to a local treatment facility or information about support groups and community-based organizations, please call 1-800-662-HELP. They offer confidential, free, 24-hour-a-day, 365-day-a-year information in English and in Spanish for individuals facing mental or substance abuse disorders. That's 1-800-662-4357. There is also the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's a national network of local crisis centers that provides free and confidential emotional support to people in suicidal crisis or emotional distress 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And that number is 1-800-273-8255. I mostly wanted to do this because I have a ton of writing and a ton of interviews and stuff pieced together. And I really would love it to be published as a novel, as a book, a memoir, or what have you. So this um, podcast was kind of like a dip into the story. Um, there's so much more to say about everything that happens after the end of this podcast. Um, and I just really hope that someone out there um, picks up more interest about um, this narrative that I'm excited to be sharing.